I don't, I don't know how to talk about um, your wellspring disciplines because um, you're women and I'm a man. <laughs> but I, I watch the, the disciplines. I watch the um, disciplines working themselves out in, in my wife. And so what I thought I would do is share with you what it's like as a husband to and how I benefit and how my kids benefit, our home benefits from what my wife does. Um, if I could describe what my wife does, it probably I'd use these two words, um, feed and fence. She, she feeds her heart, she feeds her mind, and then she's, um, from the moment she wakes up, she's fencing. She's putting up a fence to keep things out and away from her heart that she doesn't want them uh, to come to her heart. So the way that our, our schedule has always worked with kids is um, I'm the one who likes to get up early, and so I do, and I get the kids up, and she does not like to get up quite as early, although she has learned to do that much more uh, over the years. But um, I'll wake the kids up, I'll get breakfast for them, and at some point I wake her up, and when I wake her up, I put her iPad on my pillow, and what she reads first is um, Solid Joys, which is Piper's, um, one of the little devotional from Desiring God. And the reason she likes to look at that first is because it's shorter, uh, deals with a verse, has maybe four or five paragraphs or something to read. And, and she, I asked her about it because I, I know what she does, but I asked her before, I taught them Thursday and today for the Wellspring. I said, why do, you, why do you do that? And she said, well, I just try to read it maybe four or five times as, as she just kind of lays there and is waking up because she said, I want something to put my mind on. Um, that when I get up and I step out to make lunches for the kids before they go, I, I want my mind on that. I want that to be the filter through which I, I look at things. And so already she's thinking feeding herself. And one of the ways that she fences uh, herself right away is uh, having an iPad there. She could start checking email. Um, she, we're not on social media. We don't do Facebook or anything like that. And so um, there's not a lot of other things to go check. But what she doesn't do, she doesn't let herself go check email or anything. Um, if a text came overnight, she might answer that back real quick or whatever, but she's primarily trying to just keep things out and away from her that don't need to invade her life right away. Um, and then once we're all out of the house, um, she then will go back and that's when she'll do her Bible reading. And then um, since the retreat that you ladies had um, last August with Josh on prayer, she's got some elaborate prayer thing that she's, she does that she keeps track and she has several different docs um, for each one of us. And she has her Bible open and she has that open and she's working on those kinds of things. Um, she'll then start working throughout the day. And as she works throughout the day, there's no radio on. Um, she might listen to some some music, some worship music or something while she's doing her things in the house throughout the day. At some point later in the afternoon, she um, stops what she's doing and she sits back down and she, she'll read again. She might read Desiring God blog. She might read something else. Um, she's listening on ta um, tape. It's not on tape. Um, Audio book of Eric Little's uh, biography of when he was a missionary in China. Um, and so she's uh, feeding her heart with that. Um, she, but all day long she's fencing and she's feeding. And so that when the kids come home at the end of the day, um, she's ready to go. 
Um, and I'll tell you this, you know, my wife wasn't always this way. Uh, she was always in this kind of vein. She was always in this trajectory. But I, I can tell you that I, I'm, I am, I'm amazed at what I've seen the Lord do in my wife's life. And um, that she wants to be this way. She's joyful being this way. It's not a drudgery at all to be this way. Um, I benefit so much from a, a wife who is that way. My kids do. Um, one of the things that she does to help then um, impart to us the need that we need to be feeding our lives and fencing our lives is, um, this is could be really silly, um, but in our uh, kitchen, we have an island and there's three spots there for the kids to sit at. And we decided to take one of the walls and we turn it into a chalkboard wall. And it's a pretty good sized chalkboard wall. And what that has become for Kim is a platform or like a screen to display to us what she's feeding and fencing her heart with. And so um, she's constantly thinking of what to put up there. It's not a grocery list necessarily or anything like that that she puts up there. It's something that she wants us to be thinking about. Um, and so that becomes the projection of what kind of woman she is. Uh, right now we have all of our Christmas cards up around the outside edges of it um, over the years that we get from people and families. Um, and what we, it says at the top right now, it says new year, new mercies. And so what we do when we um, eat is we take a couple of those off the wall and we pray for those families and then we um, put them in a basket and then we'll just keep doing that. It takes until like March or so to get all those off the wall. Um, she's the one who will look for like at, during Christmas time or heading into Easter um, or Good Friday. She's the one that will look for some kind of a, maybe an Advent reading or something that we can read as a family. She'll bring it to me and she'll give me a couple of them and say, would you pick one of these? And, and I pick one and then we read those together. But she's the one who's um, uh, researching that kind of stuff. She, and, and I appreciate that so much because um, uh, it just it's a help. She's a helper. And it's a, it's a blessing to have that as a helper. She's constantly sharing with the kids what she's read and uh, she's concerned about what they're reading and are they fencing their hearts. Um, She's just trying to be careful. So um, that's kind of discipline one and two and how it works in her life and how I, it's impacted. And, and that's the lady who is here on Thursday mornings watching kids in Next Generation Ministries. And that's the lady who's in this classroom right here teaching seven and eight-year-olds. Um, I got to sit with her and do that a lot this last summer. And um, I didn't take it from her. I just kind of said, I'm in. I'll, I'll be alongside you and I'll watch what you do. And, and uh, that's it's just a joy. That what you see with my wife is what you get, and that's who she is. And it's all by God's grace. Uh, she does not know that I'm even telling you all of this. Um, so, it, But it's easier to ask for forgiveness than sometimes ask for permission, right? <laughs> On some things. Right? All right. Well, let's uh, talk this morning about, you can take out your notes, and um, we'll talk about what uh, the technical word for it would be hermeneutics. But we're not going to use technical words today. We're going to stay away from all of those for the most part. I might tell you a, a couple of them. But if there's one thing you walk away with today when it comes to reading your Bible, it would be that I would want you to know this. It takes self-control. And that's probably not something that you think about normally with uh, reading your Bible is that I need to control myself or I need to focus myself. I need to discipline myself. Um, but think about it, as you read your Bible, are there not endless distractions? And, and I'm not even talking like things from the day, but endless thoughts that you read something on one page and you're like, oh, wait a minute, where did I read that? 
And the next thing you know, you're running away from God's word on the page to other ideas that maybe you've heard before or learned before or heard preached before or read in a book before. Your own experience with what you've read. Maybe even other Bible passages. And the next thing you know, you're, you're making decisions about what a passage means. And you left those words on the page a long time ago. Um, and you arrive at a foreign destination that may not resemble at all with the passage that you were in originally conveys. Well, what would you think if somebody did that with your words? In other words, let, let's, let me give you a silly illustration. Perhaps um, you write a love letter to your husband, and it's, you hand it to a friend. They look at it. They start to read it. And as they start with your words, they're perhaps reminded of a scene from a, a movie, a romantic movie they saw that they just love, that really impacted them. And so they started to run with those ideas of love and and that and so forth. And finally, where they end up with your words actually has very little to do with your original words that you wrote to your spouse all while they hold your letter in their hands. It would be appropriate for you at that point to say to that person, would you please control yourself with my words? That'd be right to say, control yourself with my words. Please don't run off somewhere else to get at the meaning of what I wrote. And we just need to extend to God the same courtesy. Whose words are far more important than our words, right? Um, above all, we should control ourselves with his words. Well, how do we do that? How do you control yourself with God's words? Well, we want to give you some guidelines to put before you and around you that will help restrain you so that you don't quickly leave his words on the page that you're reading in order to get to other interesting ideas that are in your head. Um, so the guidelines here, I got 10 of them for you. By the way, you should probably have 40, or maybe you just need five really good ones. It, the number doesn't matter. It's not so much that, that right? Um, but these are guidelines or rules or principles that can help restrain us as we consider our great God and our Savior's words to us. So the first one that you see there, when you read, prayerfully position yourself under the God of the Word. You have this prayer uh, probably somewhere in your Wellspring notebook. Is that true? Do you think? This is the first time you've seen it. Okay, great. Um, this is a sample prayer. This is not one that you must pray word for word as it is, but something like this reflects the kind of heart attitude um, to have toward reading the Word of God. Um, so hopefully it serves as an example of, of, a, of a, maybe a, an interesting way to think about self-control. Um, we need to control ourselves that when we come to the word of God, first and foremost, that we're just prayerful worshipers of the God of the word. We, and, and that takes control. I don't wake up naturally just doing that. Um, I don't come off from a meeting or from work that I've been doing or whatever and come to the Bible and I'm just instantly a prayerful worshiper. I have to control myself. I have to discipline myself. I have to focus myself to do that. And in so doing, that's the right kind of person to try to get at meaning of words, God's words. So I'm not going to read all of it to you, but just maybe just the first paragraph to give you the, the kind of sense of the heart that you want to have as you approach God's word. Again, these words like these are, are what you're after, not these words exactly. Um, I intend this time in your word to be a prayerful expression of worship of you, God, of desire for you, love for you, need of you, and dependence on you. Your word tells me that as God, you're set apart from 
your creation in holiness. You are also high above all things and sovereign in your reign over all things, including my life. Yet, how tenderly you stoop towards your creatures to show love and compassion and countless kindnesses. Your perfect provision sustains all that you um, have made and it glorifies your great name. You are worthy to be worshipped and I desire to see more of you in your word. My pursuit of you through your word and prayer, this is only possible through your son Jesus, who is my savior. So I approach you through him, my substitute and high priest, the one whom I love but have not yet seen. His death in my place has secured for me this place before your throne to express my need to you. So you're you're just trying to take time to focus your mind in, okay, now who's God and why am I here? You need to have a good answer to that question. Why am I here with my Bible open? And so I've come up with a, four different ways to answer that, and you probably need 20 different answers to this. But why have I prayerfully come before your word? Well, first, because you've revealed yourself there more than any other place. That's why I'm here. I can look out on creation, and I can see snow-capped mountains, and I can see um, a beautiful sunset, um, and that reveals something to me about you, but only that you're our creator, and that you are um, eternal in your power, and you are divine in your nature, but it doesn't reveal to me that I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of a Savior. That only comes from God's Word. That's special revelation, right? Um, another reason that I'm here is I have your word open because I need to learn more of the nature of my sin and my fallenness. I will not think rightly of my sin. I do not think rightly of my sin apart from the Bible. I've never thought worse about it than what God says about it. I only ever give myself a break in regards to my sin. So I need to come back to God's word and I need to think rightly about my sin and my sinful nature. Um, the residual sin that is still within me. You can read all that paragraph there to get to the sense of that. Why do I have your word open and I'm prayerfully before your Bible? Um, so that I might undergird my life again with a saving heart and motive in the gospel of your son. I mean, once I've looked at what sin is, or as I'm reading through and I see what sin is, uh, wow, do I, do I see my need for a savior and I need to come back to the gospel. By the way, when you're reading about like in Genesis 11, and it's the Tower of Babel, and you're reading about other people's sin. Um, remember that we're all a family as humanity, and that sin is not something that I don't have. They're just expressing their sin in a way maybe that I haven't even thought of yet, or maybe I have thought of it, and I do it exactly the same way, but I didn't see it that way until I read them doing it. So you're using what you see in, in the Bible to help you understand the nature of sin and um, and then you're running to the gospel. Um, and then fourthly, finally, I have your word open before me today uh, to study what righteousness and holiness of life looks like. I, I'm a new creature in Christ. I've been given new capacities. I have the indwelling spirit of God in me. And um, his power is sufficient for me to um, live a life of holiness and obedience to him and so forth. And in praying something like this at the beginning... I'm disciplining myself to be the right kind of person who's looking for meaning in God's word, the meaning in God's word. Okay. I discipline myself. I focus myself. I'm reining myself in. I'm trying to control myself to be a prayerful worshiper of God when I approach God's word. Should I approach God's word as anything else, as any other type of person? And again, that does not naturally happen uh, for me or 
probably doesn't happen naturally for you. There might be some days it, it goes easier for you. And praise God for those kind of days, right? But what do you do when you get up and your heart's cold and you've spent 10 minutes trying to talk to God to get yourself reined in and you just don't even feel like you're even there yet? Just keep going. And just open the word of God and just start reading. And um, if you draw near to a fire on a cold morning and, and you're not completely warmed up in the first five minutes, what do you do? You turn around and you warm up the backside and then you just turn around and put your head. You just stay there. Just keep going to the source. Just keep going to the source, source and your, your heart will warm. But you need to be the right kind of person before you're going to interpret God's meaning that you're reading, okay? So when you read, prayerfully position yourself under the God of the Word. Number two, and I'm going to give you a disclaimer on this. I have been given permission to use um, a lot of material from Joel James' stuff. I, I like the way Joel thinks. He's um, a pastor in South Africa. Um, Smed has been down there for his conferences. I've been down there for his conferences, and he's a dear friend um, from long ago, and I like the way he thinks, and he has given me permission to steal every single one of his thoughts. So... I'm going to use a lot of them here. Uh, number two, when you read, expect a single coherent meaning. One meaning, and you can understand it. You can. Okay? When was the last time you communicated by email or by a text or in a Facebook post so as to not be understood? I'm going to text my husband, and I do not want him to understand me. <laughs> Nobody does that, right? Right? When was the last time, you, that doesn't mean that you always are understandable, but you don't intend to be not understood. When was the last time you were not eager for your spouse, your kids, or employee, a boss, students, teacher, whoever, to understand you? You expect to be understood when you communicate, right? And so you need to expect a meaning because you expect meaning to be found when you communicate. That's the way language works. And when was the last time you intended to communicate two equally valid, coexistent meanings from the same set of words? So that one child hearing those words concluded one meaning, but another child concluded a valid and entirely different meaning from the very same set of words. When was the last time you ever did that? Language doesn't even work that way. Language and communication are, are gifts from God which allow us to make unseen ideas in our heads understandable to others. How do you do that? How do you take the thought that's inside your head and make it understandable to somebody else? It's called language. It's words. And, I, and you knew that. I didn't even have to tell you that, but you may not have ever thought of it quite like that. Um, it's a gift from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence. We all communicate in order to be understood in these ways. When people speak, we listen to them expecting to find one coherent meaning at a time. We do. This is just what we do as humans with language. And the word became flesh. God is the word. Jesus is the word. And his language can be understood. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. He wrote this because he wanted to be understood. He did, right? Let's go to Isaiah 45. Let's show you a few verses here. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. And then Deuteronomy 29, we'll turn to in just a moment. Isaiah 45, 9, 18 and 19. 
towards the end of verse 18. You can see it there, the verse I'm looking at. I am the Lord, there is none else. I have not spoken in secret. In some dark land, it's hard to find stuff in a dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I'm hiding from you. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Look, um, the Lord expected the offspring of Jacob, Israel, to understand him because his meaning in his words were not in secret. They were not unfindable. They only have ever been out in the plain sight of Israel. He communicated so as to be understood. Listen, the Bible is not a spy's communication intended to make you think that direction with the words, but really the meaning is over here. It's not a spy's communication back to his intelligence sources. You don't need to reach down into the bottom of the cereal box to find the decoder ring and pull it out and put it on your finger and look through it or whatever and to get to the meaning of, of this. Because God spoke to be understood. Go to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It's an easy passage to remember. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's a great one. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all of the words of this law. Precious words to Israel as they're out in the wilderness about to head into the promised land. Now listen, God has not communicated everything he knows or has planned to do for Israel or for man. There are still some secret things that belong to him, right? Just because we have the Bible doesn't mean we have God exhaustively. Right. There are still some secret things that belong to him, but there are revealed things that belong to Israel and Deuteronomy 29 and to the rest of us who have God's word. God doesn't hold us accountable to know and understand what is secret to him. That's where a lot of the rub comes in life. Right. I just want to know what he's doing. I don't know either. But that's not what he calls us to know. What he calls us to know is what he has revealed to us. And notice the extent to which God expected understanding. Look at verse 29 again. The things revealed belong to us, Moses says to Israel, and to our sons forever. Why? And to what extent? So that we may observe all the words of this law. So that we be obedient, not to some of them, but to all of the words of this law. So that's the extent to which God expects his words to be understood. The revealed things of the law that God gave through Moses was so clear it could be obeyed. It had to be obeyed by Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that every passage of Scripture is easily understandable. Peter said about Paul's words, right, in 2 Peter 3.15, that Paul has some words, some of which are really hard to understand. It doesn't mean that you won't have to work for it, but it does mean that God communicated so to be understood and to communicate one meaning at a time. So when we read God's word, we read expecting to discover one coherent message after another from one passage to the next, um, even though it may take some patience with some careful thinking as we read. But we, ex- we read expecting to discover one meaning in a text, not several, because we don't communicate that way. Language doesn't work that way. 
right? We count on that, and we enjoy that basic understanding about language. And above all, we should extend that same courtesy to God and his words. Um, so the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. So listen, discipline yourself to expect one meaning. Come to the Bible as a prayerful worshiper, but come thinking, I'm going to get the one meaning in the passage that I'm in. Or in the sentence I'm in. And then in the next one, I'm going to get the one meaning that's there. And in the next one, I'm going to get one meaning. Discipline yourself to expect a single coherent meaning. You expect that kind of self-control from others as they listen to you. Now let's do it with God's word. Number three. When you read, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. When you read, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. And by the way, you have like just blank page there. At some point, if you get a cramp, uh, from trying to write, because this is fire hose, I'm going to be giving to you uh, amounts. Feel free to just maybe listen and write less today, but maybe then go back and listen again and you can fill your notes in. I, I wouldn't feel badly if you get kind of burned out here at some point, or at least your arms in a cramp. Um, hold fast to the normal use of words and language. We read and study the Bible following the practices we consider normal for any other important document, Right? You don't do something different with the Bible than what you do with Eric Little's biography about his mission work to inland China. When a husband comes home from work and he finds a note on the counter and it says the light is out in the hallway, he doesn't start thinking, spiritual darkness is welling up in my house. <laughs> he doesn't do that. That's not what was normally intended, and that is not the normal use of those words. That's not the normal meaning to, or interpretation of those words. Um, the practice that implements the normal reading of the Word of God is called the literal, grammatical, historical method. And that's all I'm going to say. It's the literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpretation. All, that, all you need to know about what that means right now, it is the normal use of words and language. It sounds really technical, but all those three words put together mean is we're going to read the words normally in their setting. Okay. If you want to take a more extensive hermeneutics class, we might have another one offered again at some point when we do equipping hour again, and you can learn more about specifically what that means. But normal reading or normal interpretation means statements are assumed to be normal unless it is evident that the author is using a figure of speech. For example, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Um, our minds instantly just go, oh, I know he doesn't mean he's wood, made of wood, and he swings on hinges. I know that. So that's just normal. It allows for a metaphor. It, it allows for a figure of speech that resembles something. Something real <coughs> resembles something that's not real for the person. But normal use of language allows for that. But even, or, or a, a literal use of that. Even when you are looking at um, a metaphor like that, start with what is literal about it. Start with what is normal about it. Well, what is the purpose of a door? Um, what did Jesus intend to suggest about himself in his resemblance of a door in one sense or another? Maybe Jesus is the entrance. He's the gateway to eternal life. That's what he's trying to say. Um, now, it's important also to understand that this is really important. Let me ask you this. Let's say you use a metaphor when you're speaking, some kind of a figure of speech. Who gets to decide if what you said was a metaphor or not? Do your kids or your husband or whoever's listening to you? 
the speaker gets to decide if it was a metaphor or not, right? You wouldn't want somebody to conclude that you were being metaphoric in the way you spoke when you weren't, right? The author gets to control it. Who gets to determine if God is using a metaphor or not? Not the reader. God does. And we have to look at the context to determine that, right? See, one of the things I love about hermeneutics, it's not something like, I communicate one way over here as a human being. Oh, but now I'm going to read my Bible and I've got to find this. Where did that, where did that set of rules go? Uh, of how to interpret the man? I don't know how to do it. No, just take, ask yourself, how do I communicate? How do I expect to be understood? How do I try to understand people? And it's the same thing. But when we come to God's word sometimes as Christians, it loopy things start to happen. Crazy things happen that we would never do reading a history book. We just wouldn't do it. Okay, so the controlling line of authority for the meaning of the word is always in the words and in the context that the author spoke. Okay, your hearers don't get to decide when you're being figurative in your speech. You get to decide that. So discipline yourself to look for God's normal use of words and language. And in so doing, you get to honor God in his word um, as you read it. Okay, number four, when you read, read the passage or the book repeatedly to make observations. Um, by the way, I want to qualify or at least expand on what I mean by uh, reading your Bible today. If you were to do what I'm suggesting here today with your Bible reading, it's going to slow you way down. This is a very contemplative, meditative, study-like way of reading your Bible. You need to make sure that you have some kind of reading of your Bible that is like that. But it's also a-okay to sit back at a 30,000-foot level as you fly over a lot of land and just look down and just read and read and read a lot. It would be a good idea at one point to try to read all of Judges in one setting. Get a sense for what the author of Judges is thinking as he's writing the whole thing. You can't do all of this the same way when you do that kind of reading. You needed to have both kinds of reading in your life. That doesn't mean every day you need to have an hour of big reading and an hour of contemplative, meditative study reading. It means, though, maybe uh, this week I'm going to read a lot three days and two days I'm going to do more meditative reading or something like that. Get creative. Make sure that in your life there's a, a good mix of both. Um, so read the passage, read the book repeatedly to make observations. Here's some sample kinds of questions you can ask yourself um, at macro levels. In other words, at, at, the, at the whole level, the Bible level, the book level that you're considering, and, and micro levels, the specific passage or verse you're reading. Um, and this is where you're going to spend a lot of your time as you're reading carefully. Um, you'll see that these sections are kind of grouped off. That first section of, of questions there or things to consider as you read, those, those are the kinds of questions that will transplant you from where you are and will plant you back into the context of the writer. It'll help you to put their sandals on and to sit in their tent and to sweat and to drink warm water and to eat flat bread and whatever in their setting. It's going to put you there. These are the kinds of questions that want to uproot you where you are and transplant you where um, they are at. And by the way, don't you like it when your hearer tries to get into your shoes? Don't you like that? That's helpful, isn't it? And so let's do this, extend to God the same courtesy and do the same. Let's transplant ourselves back. The next set of words uh, or questions there are, are, are questions or things that will direct you to think about the very words themselves in front of you. Um, 
a couple of them down in here maybe to, to look at. Um, read the passage in several other versions. It's really good. If you're going to read a little more slowly, take, take John 3.16 and look at it in um, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Look at which is now just the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, look at it in NIV. Look at it in NAS. Look at it in ESV. Look at it in New King James Version and find out where they're different and ask yourself why. Why did this version translate it this way, this word, but not these other ones? These other words or translations leave it out completely. Why did they do that? It'll give you good indications for um, what uh, is going on in that verse. Um, what do you think the key words and phrases are? What in the text supports your conclusion? By the way, your favorite concepts and words do not automatically make a word the key word in the passage. Just because it's your favorite word and you see it there doesn't mean that that's the main idea. Okay? And, and you know this is true because your son's favorite word is ice cream. And if you say to your son, what matters to mommy is how you ask me for ice cream. He doesn't get to determine what the key word is in that statement. Right? See, these things are, are self-evident. You know this to be true. We just need to apply them to our Bibles. So if, you're, if your favorite word is blood and you come to a passage, that doesn't mean that means like the blood of a sacrifice. It just be like something creepy like blood. But um, you, you're, that doesn't mean that it's the key word in the passage, right? All right, so the next grouping of, of words down there is, um, helps you to ask, why is this passage here? Let me give an example. This is the one that stands out to me the most um, personally. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, those are the accounts of Peter. That's the account of Peter going to Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile, and um, it took the Spirit giving him a vision three times to get it, that you need to, whatever you think is unclean, Peter, knock it off. Go to him. Go stay in his house. Um, and so God thought it was important enough to include two chapters on that. Chapter 10 is what actually happened. And then chapter 11 is Peter having to tell the whole thing over again to all the Jews so that they get it. Because something really important is happening with the expansion of the gospel. It's going beyond the Jews into the Gentiles, just like Acts 1.8 said it would. Okay, so that's Acts 10 and 11. Skip chapter 12 for a moment. Acts 13. Do you know what Acts 13 is? It's Paul's first missionary journey out into the Gentile world. Okay, so the gospel is going to go from the Jews to the Gentiles, and here's Peter trying to take it to the Gentiles. Skip chapter 12. Chapter 13, all the way to the end, is the gospel going to the Gentiles. What's going on in chapter 12? Peter gets arrested by Herod. Herod puts James to death with a sword, and then Herod is eaten by worms and dies after Peter escapes, right, miraculously. Why is that chapter there? The gospel is going to start going to the Gentiles. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. Why was it important to show that a king was trying to kill apostles, but the king got eaten by worms? Why was that important? Why is that there? Those are the kinds of questions you can ask yourself, and I'll let you answer that one later on your own. Um, <laughs> so why is that passage there? You, you can do that at the paragraph level. Why all of a sudden does Paul start talking about, I want men to pray for kings and all who are in authority? After chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, and then why does he do that? You can do that at the 
at the paragraph level as well. Some of the most meaningful conversations or interactions that we have with each other are not about what we say, but why did you say that? Why did you, why did you say that when you said it? Good question. Here's why I think I did that. And you, you have those kinds of conversations. That's, that's good to do. And the last grouping of paragraph there is just remind yourself you're a worshiper. Start even in the middle of your reading as you're making observations. Just try to make a little list. What am I learning about God here? What am I learning about my sin? What am I learning about um, the gospel? What am I learning about holiness of life? What am I learning about life? Okay. Number five. When you read, understand the relationship between interpretation and application. Understand the relationship between interpretation and application. There's an important relationship between those two things. Um, they're like, I'll illustrate it first, and then we'll, I'll give you definitions here. Um, interpretation of a, of a passage and application of the passage are like two relay runners. Okay, um, Two back-to-back runners on a relay team. Interpretation of a passage runs its first leg with its baton, and then it hands off the baton so that application can run its leg into the reader's life. Okay, Interpretation is not application. They don't run at the same time. They don't do the same thing. And application is not interpretation. Now, they both really need each other greatly. They just must take their proper space and their role in the relationship. Okay? Interpretation of a passage first, application second, okay? What is interpretation? Here's a simple definition. Um, Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in his historical situation, okay? The word interpretation and meaning go together. Interpretation and meaning go together. Application, if we're going to define application, it's the various ways that I need to live in light of the meaning of that passage. The various ways that I need to live in light of that meaning in the passage. Okay, It's important to understand how both of those are related. Let me give you a a sloppy example in in a misuse of the word meaning. And there's just an avalanche of trouble here. Um, you'll hear um, people talk about, well, um, what that passage means to me is, and they talk about how their life needs to change or whatever. And one person listening to that goes, that's not, I didn't come up with that at all. And so then the next thing that they say in response to that is, well, that may be what that passage means to you, but what it means to me is, And all of a sudden, just ask yourself the question again. How many meanings are there in a passage when you communicate? Did you ever communicate so that there were two equally valid meanings to come from one set of words? So what's the problem? The problem is not in the passage. The problem is in the way the Christians are talking about it. Meaning is not about how I want to live my life in light of it. There's only only one person who means anything in the passage, and it's not me, and it's not you, it's the author, it's whoever it is, right? So we don't communicate two different sets of meanings from the very same set of words. Um, For instance, John 15, 12, love one another. Jesus told his 11 disciples, Judas is gone by that point in John 15. 
if a, if a wife concludes that the way that her life needs to change as a, as a result of reading that command to 11 men in the first century is I need to, I need to love my husband better. And if she says what that passage means is I need to love my husband better. She's going to find herself very concerned that if other women also find that same meaning and try to love her husband better too. And it's, it's ridiculous, but, but that's not what it means. Jesus is the only one who means anything in those words. He's the author of those words. And it's the reader's responsibility to interpret carefully so as to grasp his one meaning in the text. And then the reader must carefully think about the implications um, and the applications that are necessary in life, right? The meaning of that passage is Jesus commanded 11 of his disciples to live out a selfless concern for others. That's what that passage means. Okay? A woman reading that or studying that may feel very convicted about the way her love for her husband looks. And that's appropriate to feel that way. But that's application, not interpretation. Okay? Um, let me give you an example. Let's turn to Romans 12, verse 1. And we'll practice. Just, just I'll show you how easy this is, how simple this is. Um, it's intuitive to you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. To do interpretation. Uh, here's the passage. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's a, here's a simple way to go after interpretation. Write down every observation and start it with Paul said to the Romans. Paul said to the Romans... Um, by the mercies of God, to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Paul said to the Romans that that is acceptable to God. Paul said that that's their spiritual service of worship. Paul said to the Romans to not let their um, minds be conformed to the world. Paul said to the Romans that they should not be, tra instead they should be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Paul said to the Romans that that would prove what the, acceptable, or what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when you, when you talk about the original author in his setting to the readers, you're, and you word it that way, you're getting after meaning or interpretation. We haven't even talked about how my life should change yet. Right? Now, application could, could be many different things that come from that. Um, Paul said to the Romans, believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living that unbelievers do. And so one person reading that would say, man, application or implication for my life, what I watch makes me sometimes start to think like the world. What I watch on TV does that. Another person who got that same meaning might walk away and say, you know what I'm reading is really not helpful for my mind. I'm, I'm conforming my mind to the world by reading these things that I'm reading uh, uh, or another one would say, I'm spending way too much time with this person because I just start to think too worldly. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have enough self-control yet to um, keep the way that they think away from the way that I should think. And, and so now multiple applications, but only how many meanings? One. And one is relay runner number one. Hands off the baton. Application now takes place from there. Interpretation doesn't keep running with application, okay? So notice these are two crisp, clear, distinct steps. What did Paul mean? That's interpretation. And how should my life change? That's application. 
Okay, so what Paul said and meant for the Romans is related to how your life needs to change, but they are not equal. And just just watch yourself with the word means. If you say, well, what this means to me is, you might be saying, you might be intending, well, it was really meaningful to me in this sense that my life needs to change. But just be careful because that's not what it means. And you wouldn't want people to talk about your words that way um, in your language. Okay. So discipline yourself to interpret first and then to make applications. And in so doing, you will honor the Lord in your reading of his word. Number six, when you read, linger longer for better life impact. Linger longer. This is very similar to what we just said, but I'm going to kind of turn it just a little bit and talk about it from a different angle. Let me make the case for lingering longer and then I'll illustrate it for you, okay? Um, All of you want to be serious readers of the Bible and you are. Um, when When we are that way, when we're really pursuing God in his word, um, we're looking for a life-changing life impact. We are. We want that. Um, we want that kind of encouragement from the Bible. Um, we want it to speak into whatever situation in life that we're currently facing. And certainly God intends his words to do that, does he not? That's why they're there. Um, but how we get to the life impact is everything. That's what matters, how you do it. We shouldn't get to a life-impacting, feel-good moment of encouragement from God's word by doing violence to God's meaning. Um, So this especially is where we need to control ourselves as we read um, scripture carefully with the hopes of living out a meaningful application. Um, It's possible to to have a kind of a heart of desperation. I just... So desperately want God to speak into the situation in my life. I just need to make sure that when I find it, I did it the right way with his words. Because I would want somebody to do that with mine, right? Well, not because, but we work that way and how much more so with God. The problem is, is we can arrive at feel-good impact in illegitimate ways with God's word. It's possible to be a hurried or a desperate reader and walk away from Bible reading feeling really good about the life impact that we found that God doesn't feel good about the way his words were handled. Okay? So what's the solution? First, discipline yourself. Train yourself to desire the true meaning of the passage first. Okay? Train yourself. It... Look, this is not like you've been eating steak all your life and now I want you to eat bark off of twigs. What you maybe have been doing is eating cotton candy and I'm trying to get you to to like steak and chicken and mashed potatoes and good stuff, okay? Train yourself to desire the true meaning of a passage before life impact, okay? It's another way to think of the relationship between interpretation and application. Here's something else you can discipline yourself with. Discipline yourself to not want any kind of feel-good life impact from God's word that isn't truly connected to meaning, the meaning of it. Discipline yourself to not want any kind of feel-good life impact from God's word that isn't connected to the original intent God communicated. I'm going to illustrate this in a minute. I'm giving you all the principle of it right now. That means you have to linger longer in the text 
to get the life impact that God intends. Okay? All right, so let me give you an example. A very popular, well-known example. Jeremiah 29.11. Listen. Listen to these words. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. I don't have to work at all for that to feel good. Do I? I don't have to work at all. I mean, there are some verses like that in the Bible. You don't have to work at all to walk away going, that just feels good about my life. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There are passages like this all over the Bible that the feel-good life impact is like immediate. It's like a It's like heroin going right into your bloodstream. I mean, wow, there it is. Not that I would know what that's like. (laughs) I don't at all. On the surface, though, modern day readers, I mean, you you don't have to do anything to really get to a good feeling there. And so that little statement gets put on memes and on Christian calendars and it's everywhere, right? Go back to Jeremiah 29. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want you to see this. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Not verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Whatever he says after that was to those people. Right? Sometimes it's, it's just really easy to see in, in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. That's me. That's me. Now, are these words for me? Yes, but in what sense are they for me is what I've got to get to. Do you understand? Linger longer to get the right life impact or you can do violence to the meaning of the text. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's on top of the door of every gym locker of every Christian high school or gym door in a locker room in every Christian high school. And everybody slaps it on the way out. I can do this. I can win because he's strengthening me. And the other Christian team, they play just prayed the same thing or somebody's not going to fulfill that passage very well. Lingering longer clarifies this. Listen, can I ask you this question? What if in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? What if God primarily wants you, as you read those important words to Israel in exile, what if, what if he primarily wants you to just marvel in worship at his goodness and kindness to people that don't deserve? What if that's why that passage is there for you? In other words, let me ask it this way to you. To maybe make it a little bit more um, blunt. Do those words only take on life impact when you are written into them? That's the way Christians approach this word. Is I just write myself into whatever word, verse I want to. And we do violence to God's word. I would never want anybody to do that with my words and neither would you. But we Christians do these weird things with the Bible. It takes a lot of self-control to not write yourself into every passage. And if that's what we think, that life impact only happens when I'm written into it, 
then we don't understand the way that life impact needs to take place. We've settled for a cotton candy life impact that's not even based on the meaning of texts. Self-control. Train yourself to, to taste this, to have an appetite for the true meaning first, and then life impact will come. It will. You might have to wait a little bit longer. Your life change um, your life must change. It must be influenced by God's word. But that has to happen the right way with an honorable use of God's word. Okay? You're going to be far more satisfied when you find out why it's really there and that maybe it's not about you at all, but it's about your God. That's my God in Jeremiah 29. It's your God. You don't have to be written into it for it to have impact. Okay? So, by the way, have you ever noticed that when you read like a history book on World War II and the forces uh, landing on Normandy and going, did you notice that the way that it made an impact on you, that you didn't have to write yourself into the story? You weren't one of the soldiers jumping out of the back, almost drowning, climbing out of the water, almost dying, um, getting shot, but then dragging yourself to safety. You didn't have to do any of that to make it have an impact on you. Why do we do it with the Bible? I don't know, but we do. Number seven, when you read, give grammar and syntax more weight in interpretational decisions. Um, not going to spend very much time on this, but the more, if you could ever, if you could go to like a Barnes and Noble, I don't even know if they sell them anymore, if you could find it. Um, when, I was t- when I was a teacher um, back in the early 90s out in California, um, they were running away from, as in education, they were running away from grammar and teaching grammar. And so the ninth grade grammar books were all being thrown away. I grabbed like a dozen of them because I knew that that wasn't right. And I loved diagramming even back then. And I grabbed them all and I hung on to them. And when I went to seminary, I handed them out to guys who, didn't, who were never taught grammar. Um, if you can learn a little bit of grammar and get a simple workbook or something like that and just once in a while open it up and try to learn a, a couple more things... Um, it, all it's going to do is it's going to help you access the meaning a little maybe easier. There might be some things that will jump out at you a little more clearly. You don't have to know grammar. You already intuitively know grammar in ways that you just don't know you know. Um, but if you can improve a little bit in what you know, it'll help you make good decisions in, in interpretation. Let me give an example of, of how important this is. There used to be um, some old game shows on TV. One was called Password, and the other one I think was called like the $10,000 Pyramid or something like that. And what the, what the uh, contestants would do is one person would be given a keyword, and the announcer would come over with a... I watched some YouTube clips of this to remind myself. The word is snoring. <laughs> so the one person sits there and says, Breathing. And the partner is like, I have no idea. Go to the next side. Um, the contestant or those two p- pairs, one says, uh, sleeping. So he's thinking, breathing. Don't know. Comes back over, annoying. <laughs> uh, snoring. Uh, see, what I'm trying to say is we don't communicate meaning for us. Words have meaning. But we don't communicate our meaning at the word level. Nobody talks that way. When you're trying to have a meaningful conversation with somebody, you don't make a list of words, write them down, and and then just say them one at a time. Nobody does that, right? What do we do? We take words and we put them together. And we have subjects and we have verbs and we have objects and we have 
independent clauses, we have dependent clauses, and the way they're all arranged together, you intuitively do this. And the meaning is found not at the word level, it's found at the sentence level. That doesn't mean that words don't have meanings. They do. But the primary meaning of what you're trying to communicate is in a clause or in, in a sentence. And the more you can know things like that, or the, the more you can uh, be told what you already know, uh, it only helps you in your interpretation, okay? Um, so the more familiar you can be, the clearer the meaning will jump out at you. Discipline yourself. Stretch yourself to learn a little bit more. Number eight, be careful with the word's meaning when you read. At the proper place, at the proper time, it's appropriate to isolate words in your careful reading of Scripture in order to define them accurately. As you do this, keep in mind the historical appropriateness of the definitions that you might seek. One of the great dangers a Bible reader uh, faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into an ancient biblical word. The example that I use all the time is the word slavery. In our day, when we think of slavery, we probably think back to our nation's history. We think of the the, the terrible injustices of all that slavery was in, in many ways with that. And we take that meaning and we import it back into Colossians 4. We import it back into Ephesians 5 or 6. And we, Paul's writing to slaves there. And, and we take our meaning of slavery and we import it into the first century meaning. And the problem with that is, is both ideas, if you understand first century slavery and our nation's history of slavery, they are not equal. There are lots of overlap but they are not equal. And when you transfer a meaning from your culture into back into the meaning of a word in the text, that's called totality transfer. You're totally transferring all of your meaning from your day into that word. And the next thing you know, well, let me just ask the question. Would you want anybody to do that with your words? You see how easy this is? That's not how language works, but we do funny things with God's word, okay? Um, totally transferring from your culture into the text. Let me give you another one. You can do this within your Bible. Go to Galatians 5 real quick. I promise we're getting really close to being done here. Uh, Galatians 5, watch this. Totally transferring a meaning from one passage into another. How about Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, of the flesh because that's bad. The flesh is bad, right? The flesh, here's how bad it is. It sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit is against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And then you turn over to John chapter one, verse 14. And it says the word became flesh. Oh no. <laughs> See, that's total. That, that's a totality transfer that is also wrong, but it's within my Bible. I didn't do it from my culture to the Bible. I did it within the Bible. In other words, what does that tell you about the word flesh? It has more than one meaning. And so the way I know that this one word, which has meaning, multiple meanings, the way that I know um, what the author is intending is I look at the context. I look at the sentence. You see, meaning, ultimate meaning is found at the sentence level. And you have to look at the word and compare it uh, to other places. What the author intended in the his specific context determines what a word means, not other context. I don't define flesh in John chapter 1 by Galatians 5. I have to let John 1 tell me what flesh is. I have to let Galatians 5 tell me what flesh is. And I need to let both of them stand equally in the Bible. And I'll figure out what that means on a bigger level. Okay, right? 
Discipline yourself. Control yourself with the word's meaning. Number nine, when you read, compare and contrast your passage with other passages. This builds off the other. And this has more to do with the unity of the Bible. Uh, but you need to do this carefully. And you, need to, and you need to notice this is number nine, not number one. Don't turn to other passages earlier or sooner in your reading to compare. Do it later. There's an important balance to remain, uh, maintain when you're reading Scripture. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by um, more than 30 human authors. And yet the Bible agrees with itself everywhere because there was ultimately one capital A author, even though there were 30 smaller A authors also. God breathed it forth from his one mind, and the Bible does not contradict itself. However, just because the one author of Scripture never disagreed with himself from one passage to the next, that doesn't mean that every single passage says the exact same thing or has the exact same meaning. Right? The unity of the Bible doesn't demand that each passage says the exact same thing. Unity can get, you can get at unity another way and a better way than that. That would be one way to get at unity. The only way that the Bible can have a unified message is if every single passage says the exact same thing. Uh, that'd be one way. Um, that is why you must be careful when you cross-reference cross in your reading. Okay, Each passage needs to speak for itself and then be lined up next to other passages and considered in that string of passages. What is the overall message being communicated by God in each of these passages? That's what you've got to figure out. Um, so we need to avoid the practice of taking our conclusions from one passage and applying them to another. Let me give you an example, probably one of the most confusing ones that you will ever come across if you do it that way. And that is to take the word justification in James chapter 2 and cross-reference it with Paul's use of justification in Galatians or Ephesians or uh, Romans. Uh, to read James's meaning into Paul's or vice versa would do violence to either one of them. Each passage needs to stand on its own and say what it says. If James is saying faith without works is dead, and Paul is saying you're dead, you can't have justification with works, how do you reconcile that? Do you make, do you do something funny with James's words so it says the exact same thing that Paul say, or vice versa? Or do you let James say what James says and you let Paul say what Paul says and get at the unity of what God's saying in another way? In other words, there's a way to think about justification that isn't declared righteousness, but a righteousness or a declare, or not a declared righteousness, but a, a kind of righteousness before men how to evaluate your, your fruit of your life. What, what good is faith if it doesn't have works? And Paul is saying at the doorway of salvation, there are no works, only faith. And James is saying, yeah, but once you've believed and you get through, there better be some works with this faith. And we go, ah, yes, now the Bible, ha I see what's going on here. But there's, you have to get to the unity of it the right way. And so when you cross-reference, you have to be very, very careful. Neither meaning overrides the other and nullifies or crosses out the other. It'd be really easy just to ignore what James says, and we'll just stick with what Paul says. I just won't read James. I don't understand it. That'd be one way to not have any conflict in my mind, right? And that would be a really silly thing to do. Okay, it's your job as a reader to get to the harmony in God's mind. You just have to do it the right way. 
Okay, so discipline yourself to stay in your passage longer. If you find yourself quickly wanting to run away or turn to another passage in order to define your word, uh, slow down. Um, if you ever ask somebody, hey, what does this mean? And they say, oh, yeah, well, turn over to this. Let me tell you what it means. And I just say, wait a minute. Let's just stay on this page first and you tell me what it means. Um, I like it when people do that with my words and you too. Lastly, you're going to pray again when you're done. When you are done reading, prayerfully contemplate what you have just read. Talk to God again at the end of your reading. Your reading and praying uh, needs to just kind of go back and forth between one another in a way that you can't tell when one ends and the next one begins. I'm reading, God, you're telling me this. I, God, what does that mean? I don't even know. Uh, I, or, or God, I can't believe that this that this reveals you in this way. You're, what's your like? I was stunned yesterday in uh, Nehemiah 9, um, the prayer that is there and what was being said about God and um, your reading can just turn into prayer at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. What did you learn about the meaning of the passage? And here's something that I would like to impress on you as we finish. Okay. Um, what did you learn to just praise God for getting the meaning? Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says that you used to be futile in your mind. Uh, you, you're, you were darkened in your understanding. And Colossians 1, 21 says that you used to be hostile in mind to God. And the Bible is God's mind revealed to us. And if he wrote something and you understand it now, just stop and worship. A mind that, when used with the alongside with the Spirit of God in my life, I understand God. I understand you, Lord. Not that perfectly, not completely, but I understand you. Learn to just praise God for His meaning in a text. When God reveals His mind in Scripture, shouldn't that awe you? Doesn't that awe you? When God reveals His thoughts to us through His words. Shouldn't we just pause and simply rejoice and worship that we understood those thoughts? Now listen, I, I don't want to delay. Uh, yes, I do want to delay you. I don't want to keep you from getting to application or life impact. But I think that we, in talking about discipline one in a way where we want to shepherd our hearts and um, we can talk about it in a way sometimes where what we mean by that is that the impact from my in my life is so it has to be so crucial and critical and it, and it must be. But what I'm what I want to try to do is, is maybe slow you down, not not keep you from getting there, but make you slow down and just marvel that you. I understand what this says. The meaning is amazing, and that won't keep you from applying. It'll help you be more maybe a, a, of a worshiper as you apply the word of God. I don't want you to apply the Bible less. I want you to worship more at the meaning level and then apply. Does that make sense? All right. Any questions or um, clarification that you'd like Sarah to answer? <laughs> Anybody? That's a lot. That's a fire hose. Um, Anything?
No? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Bible. We thank you for what you reveal to us in your, uh, reveal to us about yourself in it. Lord, you are good and you are kind. We don't deserve this revelation from you. It just speaks to your mercy and your compassion towards um, pitiful rebels like us, whom you have now saved. And Lord, we want to read and honor you with the way that we read. That means we need to control ourselves. Will you help us with the right kinds of guidelines put into place so that we do it well and honor you? Lord, change our lives on the basis of what we read. Help us to be worshipers who understand what you've revealed about yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.